Welcome to the AACPP podcast, the podcast brought to you by the Association of Child Protection Professionals, where we, alongside expert guests, discuss important issues within child protection and safeguarding. There has never been a more important time to keep up with child protection and safeguarding, but with regulation frequently changing, we realise not all professionals have the time to do so. That's why we've created this podcast, to give you what you need to stay informed. Every week, we'll be inviting child protection professionals with expertise in either research or practice to share their learnings. In each episode, we'll be taking a focused look at a singular issue that you need to know about. These are often specific and urgent, so we'll be talking with a professional at the forefront of the issue. Hello, I'm Anne-Marie Christian, trustee of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and your host for today. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Sarah Danga about domestic abuse related suicide and the work AAFDA Advocacy After Fatal Domestic Abuse does in the statutory review process is that follow. Sarah Danga is the operations manager and deputy CEO at AAFDA, a centre of excellence for reviews after domestic abuse related deaths. She regularly sits on the Home Office Domestic Homicide Review Quality Assurance Panel and in this role has quality assured over 200 domestic homicide reviews. Sarah has extensive experience supporting victims of domestic and sexual violence. She previously managed victim services for British forces in Germany, in Cyprus, and established a witness service for the military court in Germany. In September 2019, Sarah delivered a workshop on domestic violence at the European Conference in Oslo, focusing on reviews of non-homicide domestic abuse-related deaths, and was recently awarded a 2020 Churchill Fellowship, which will see her travel to the USA and Australia to examine the models of domestic abuse death reviews in order to share this learning in the UK. Sarah is currently on the CLAW Social Leadership Programme and a trustee for Trevi House. And on October the 15th, Sarah will be speaking at our domestic abuse virtual conference, where we have brought together leading experts within this field to share their learnings. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for that really lovely introduction. I almost don't recognise myself, but that, that was lovely. Thank you. I'm really grateful to be here today and really looking forward to speaking later this month at your conference. It might be useful to give a bit of background around AFTA and, and the work that we do broadly. So we're, a, as you said, a centre of excellence for reviews after fatal domestic abuse. We offer advocacy and peer support to families who've lost a loved one to domestic abuse. And we really help them through the review processes that follow. There are many statutory reviews. They're complex, they're difficult, and we help families to navigate those and to ensure that families have a real voice in those reviews. And ultimately, that the victims have a voice that has been taken away from them. So it's really important to all of our work that victims are at the heart of everything we do. As you said, I really have this specific interest area around domestic abuse related suicide. And we are supporting more and more families who are having to navigate this really difficult domestic homicide review process, which can take around two and a half years. And it's an area, as I said, that's really emerging. So there's some research that, that will be did back in 2004 
and she suggested that around a third of all female suicide in England and Wales was preceded by domestic abuse, which is just, you know, a huge number. And actually, if we look at recent ONS data that's been released, you know, that data says that 1,388 women took their own lives. So if we're taking Walby's suggestion of a third, so 463 of those women potentially took their own lives after domestic abuse. And it's really quite shocking figures. South or Black Sisters suggests that that number is about three women a week. And again, Walby suggested that more women take their own lives as a result of domestic abuse than are killed in domestic abuse. So we know that two women a week are killed. So more than two women a week are taking their own lives. And I think the, these statistics are really quite shocking. It's an under-researched area, although I know people are really actively working to try and understand this better. The University of Warwickshire did some research. So Aitken and Munro did some research with Refuge back in 2018. And that was really all about suicidal ideation of some of the Refuge client group. And that showed that those trapped by domestic abuse can feel so hopeless that they believe the only way out is suicide. We know that police investigations into these deaths can be patchy, where they're not always investigated, perhaps, with a domestic abuse lens, say, thinking about linking to criminal charges such as coercive control, thinking about a domestic abuse history. In many cases, there isn't a full criminal investigation that happens, and therefore there might not be a full forensic post-mortem that's requested. So we're really working quite hard to campaign and lobby government to really ask that suicides, where there's a history of domestic abuse, are investigated as thoroughly as you would investigate a clear domestic homicide. So the police investigation isn't just really important in terms of identifying criminality, but also in ensuring that these cases are referred to local community safety partnerships who are those people that commission domestic homicide reviews. It's important that we're reviewing these suicides where we have domestic abuse as an antecedent because we're learning different things from those deaths that we might learn from domestic homicides. It's important we're counting these deaths. I always say that these are the most invisible of all victims because even in their death, they're in some cases being denied a review that might reveal their lives and what they were living with, perhaps unnoticed, perhaps without help. So it's really important that we are reviewing these suicides and that we're linking our reviewing of these suicides into our suicide prevention strategies so that we're working across the board. We're working, you know, with police and health and all of the statutory and third sector organisations that might have been in a position to come into contact with these women. In your conversation, you're talking about women. In that, have you got any research about men in that balance? It's a really under-researched area generally, and I have not seen any research okay. on them. Okay. Now, that's not to say that it isn't being done, although I've done a good search and I mm-hmm. can't find any, um, but that's not to say that there are. I know there are pockets of researchers around the country and academics mm-hmm. who are doing great work around domestic abuse, male victims. There's research on male suicide as a broad theme but I've not seen any specific research on domestic abuse-related male suicide. And I have no doubt that we definitely don't have the full picture for women in an area that has had some research and we've got no idea. And so I think actually the scale of suicide where domestic abuse is an antecedent is likely enormous. In Australia, they've done quite a lot of work around looking at children's and young people's suicide where domestic abuse has been an antecedent, particularly in the Indigenous population. 
but I haven't seen a lot of research again here on that. But that is being recognised as an area of concern. When you're talking about domestic abuse, are we assuming they're in a relationship or are we assuming one could, for example, it could be a sibling or someone in the household? So in that, has that come out at all? I think it's fair to say from what we know about fatal domestic abuse generally, it's not just your intimate partner Mm -hmm. abuse. You know, there is often adult child to parent abuse that we're seeing increasing domestic homicide reviews on and a lot around this sort of informal caring relationship. Mm -hmm. We're also seeing, I haven't seen a huge amount around siblings, but certainly around other relationships. And again, it could just be people living within a household that would meet the criteria for a Mm -hmm. domestic homicide review. I know that I had a few conversations with people where under, for example, lockdown, a few colleagues spoke about, you know, women who took their lives in relation to domestic abuse. And some of them came from the ethnic minority groups. You mentioned Southall Sisters. So is there anything in that again around maybe comparing to non-ethnic minority groups? But again, we just don't have enough very specific research on those DA-related suicides to be able to pinpoint anything with any kind of accuracy or to create a very clear picture. It's just such an under-researched area. And all your questions just really illustrate how little we know. We know that suicide is an enormous problem. ONS data really shows how big the problem is, you know, amongst all sections of societies, men, women, young people. I think it's about really drilling down to understand the cause of these people taking their own lives. I know there is a lot of work ongoing, so I'm hopeful that before long we'll start to see the picture become Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a little bit clearer. So for now, we've got these quite historic pieces of research, Mm -hmm. like Warby's research back in 2004. So I think it's about building a clearer picture of where we are now, bearing in mind how far we've moved forward. And at the moment, we can use the domestic homicide reviews that have been commissioned Mm -hmm. since the guidance changed in 2016 to allow for these domestic abuse-related suicides to be reviewed. And we can use that learning to better build a picture. But I would say it's a part of the picture. We're so far from the full picture at the moment. And another question I'm thinking of, because my background being a a social worker, manager, children and family with 24 years, were any of those ones that you were part of in your reviews known to any external agencies like the police and social care? And in your reviews, the whole thing about missed opportunities. Absolutely. I think in many of the reviews that I've read, the victim perhaps had contact with agencies. There was documented domestic abuse in in their backgrounds. There were perhaps child removal for the women, sort of a history of agency involvement. And I think that's where we learn in reviews is we learn about where the opportunities might have been for Mm -hmm. accessing services and accessing services that met that Mm -hmm. victim's needs, as opposed to services that we thought might Mm -hmm. meet that victim's needs and the family's needs generally and the children's needs. Learning is coming out of the reviews. There aren't many that are published. So because the guidance changed in December 2016 and DHRs take about two and a half years, Really, they weren't being properly commissioned until mid-2017. And these things take such time that there aren't a huge number that are published. Again, so we don't have this big pool of information, but we are gathering, and that's a piece of work I'd really like to start around understanding what the published domestic abuse-related suicide reviews that are out there, what do they tell us? Because Mm -hmm. that's a start. And what type of services are best placed to help people at risk of domestic abuse related suicide? Voluntary sector, public sector, that AFEA and, you know, yourself believe are doing a good job. 
you know, I think all of those specialist domestic abuse services in local areas, it's about suicide being on their radar. It's about, you know, suicide really being considered as a risk at Marac. So we're not just thinking about a perpetrator's mm-hmm. risk, and we should be thinking about the victim's risk of harm to themselves. But I often think that's almost a secondary factor in thinking sometimes, and it's about it being at the forefront of our mind. We need to think about her risk of taking her own life and a feeling that that is the only way out. So I think it's okay. really about us being more mindful about the real risk yeah. that exists yeah. there. But also, in relation to adults and teenagers and young adults, is it balanced with more adults, and I mean more mature adults in their 30s, 40s, than it would be for the late teens, 20s? Certainly the families we're working with are adults as opposed to yeah, sort of yeah, young, young adults, adults. Um, young people. Work with a number of families who have lost sort of young people, and that's obviously very difficult, and there's, there's lots, so many factors that might be considered there. But primarily we're working with families who've lost their daughters, sisters to suicide, where they have felt that it's their only way to really escape that abuse. Or like you said, that coercive control, that mental anguish that has come from sustained abuse. What are the key research areas that you believe are the most needed in this particular area? I think, you know, firstly, my particular interest is really looking at the domestic homicide reviews that have already been commissioned around domestic abuse related suicide and and that sort of feeds into that church or fellowship that I'm doing to go to Australia and and the US to understand how they review these what I'm calling non-homicide domestic abuse related deaths to understand their models to see if perhaps there's things there that we can learn from so that you know we are world leaders and that we review these deaths and many countries don't. When I was in Oslo for the European Conference on Domestic Violence, speaking to people from Sweden, from Norway, from Spain, they don't review domestic abuse related suicides. They review domestic homicides. So we are world leading, but I think as with any system, you can always make improvements to make it really fit well. So I think that's the first thing that I'm really keen to do is just to understand what information we know from domestic homicide reviews already published. And then I think there's just this big wealth of research that lots and lots of us in the sector are really keen to do around what is the scope of the issue, what numbers of women and men and young people are taking their own lives, where domestic abuse is an antecedent, what is the numbers, what are we dealing with, and then how do we look at our suicide prevention strategies with that lens, because actually we're looking at them perhaps from quite a health point of view which you would expect, but but it's about working across sectors so that we can really come up with some responses that might prevent future death. So on that again, I suppose, is there anything currently that you think could be effective as in what you're currently seeing at Mossy Agency, like you mentioned from the A&Es to the GP, to the schools generally, you know, parents working, early help, that kind of model, to even social care, that could be effective? Yeah, I think public health in Kent are doing some really good work on really thinking about what might help in terms of multi-agencies. There's work that's being done around IDFAS being in hospital, which Mm -hmm. I think we know that can be really helpful, particularly around suicide and suicidal ideation. As I said, I think it's about us talking about it, Mm -hmm. raising it in Marrak as a risk and being really aware of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the starting point to start making that real change in terms of policy mm-hmm. and, you know how we operate I think we just need to start by having the conversations so almost having it added to the assessments done or the, the forms completed when you're filling out the general information about that individual yeah and about it being more than a tick box because yeah. it is part of a lot of the risk assessments but it yeah. is a tick box and I think yeah. it's how do we speak to people about yeah. 
suicidal ideation mm -hmm. as well and feeling comfortable yeah. asking yeah. those really difficult questions and creating a space for a victim to say, this is how I feel in reality. Are there any general themes of knowledge that you've collected from the reviews in domestic abuse related suicide? I think what anecdotally, again, I've seen is that in many cases, there have been previous attempts. The Refuge report really highlighted that multiple attempts, you know, lots of suicidal ideation. In women, at least, we know about men's suicide, that men tend to be more successful at completing suicide. But yeah, so I think really the trend is around the fact that this is contact with agencies and that perhaps the completion is not the first attempt. So really thinking about not just what we can do to prevent that suicide and suicidal ideation, but what we do after attempts, perhaps, to really change our thinking about what we need to do to prevent another attempt. And in that we you mentioned, are you talking about general public, i.e. family members, or you mean professionals or both, or society, you know? In, in I think that? all of us, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we've got to look at GPs and routine inquiry and actually what they do with the answers and all those kinds of things. And, and we need to look at what's happening on the ground with domestic abuse practitioners and, you know, in our schools. But I think, yeah, it's about us as a society as well, recognising that risk and knowing what to do with it or finding ways to try and safeguard people. Or, and I think part of that goes back to an understanding of coercive control and actually the damage that it causes, because I think we still as a society think about physical violence and we're not thinking about the coercive control and the isolation and the grinding down. You know, There have been a number of convictions around domestic abuse-related suicide. I say around because there was one conviction for manslaughter where Justine Reese took her own life. But actually other convictions have been around coercive control. And it's about recognising how ground down victims feel by the abuse and that sort of sustained abuse that leads potentially to them taking their own lives. So it's about a real deep understanding of domestic abuse beyond a, a sort of it's a punch or a slap or a push. Coercive control sits at the core of this. Mm -hmm. What can we be doing to prevent this sooner? So what are the flags or the alarm bells generally in? And I know it must vary from case to case. I appreciate mm -hmm. that. But what can we do again as society, as family members, professionals and generally community to A, raise awareness, but B, prevention? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of prevention, I don't know the answers. And I'm not sure any of us have the answers, and that's why it does have to be sort of a really multi-agency and community response to try and find some answers and to speak to women who have, you know, attempted to take their own lives and to understand what might have helped, what might have prevented, what, what would prevent them in the future. So actually, they are experts, and we need to really support them to give us that expertise so that yeah, we can yeah. learn. And I think with coercive control, as we always talk about, we all need to really raise awareness amongst us all around coercive control and its nuances, the economic abuse that can mean that actually someone might leave a relationship, but they can't, you know, they've got debt, you know, they've got huge financial implications that means that they feel so under pressure mm -hmm. or big debts in their name and there's no mm -hmm. way out. You know, there, there's all these yeah, nuances. Yeah. And I always hear about the children, you know, staying there for the children's purposes rather than their own, et cetera, as well. And, yeah. and worried about losing their children mm -hmm. and losing access to their children or yeah. being deemed as not keeping their children safe because they can't stop the abuse. And yeah. really switching that thinking, you know, there's one person responsible for abuse mm -hmm. and that's an abuser. Mm -hmm. 
So the impact of COVID on this in the six months that we've had, even though we're kind of in the middle now with where we're at, any kind of new information on what you're doing there? As I said, we, we are seeing families that have come to us during COVID who have lost loved ones during COVID to domestic abuse related suicide. We don't tend to see families that early. You know, as an organisation, yeah, we tend yeah. to sort of step in later as review processes started, but we are seeing families come to us earlier. And I think that's because they've been so isolated during lockdown and then suffered this really traumatic loss, difficult to have their normal support networks in place. And so they're finding us and coming to us earlier. We don't know really a lot yet about the impact of COVID on suicide rates around domestic abuse. We know more women have been killed during lockdown. So my gut says that more women will have taken their own lives mm -hmm. because they've been so stuck and so isolated. So what are the themes for the families? And I know every family is, you know, unique in that way, mm -hmm. but that you find as in family then discovers that it happened, they're coming to you, you're supporting them. So what are the themes in hindsight that they then have in, in working with you? I think more often than not families know more than they realise they know and so one of the things our advocates do when talking to them is draw that out from their expertise so people might say oh you know I used to speak to her every day and then it became once a week and then once a month so you start to build a yeah, picture yeah so that's the biggest thing we see is that often families just didn't recognise the abuse for those families that did so we work with quite a few families who themselves maybe work in the sector or social mm -hmm. workers who recognised, fully recognised the abuse, but actually when it was within their own family, didn't quite know how to help. What do you do safely? And so that's a piece of work we've been looking at doing with some partners about friends and family and how we can better support friends and family who have loved ones within abusive yeah. relationships. Yeah. How do you support and help whilst also keeping safe? Because we know that you can't just say to someone, well, just, you know, leave. Yeah, yeah. Um, because actually that's your real risk factor. So yeah, I think that's what we see in families. We see, had no idea this was abuse. And we see, I knew about it, but I didn't know what to okay. do with that. And can you just talk us through a bit more about the actual review process? Yeah, so it's, as I said, it's lengthy and it's Fair complex. Enough. What will happen is, is a DHR, Domestic Homicide Review Panel, will come together and pull in all of the information from agencies, from third sector organisations that was known about this victim. And what they're hoping to do is understand the contacts, any interventions, as you said earlier, missed opportunities perhaps to intervene. And the aim really is they're learning reviews, they're about learning, they're not about blaming and pointing fingers and saying he didn't, that police officer didn't do that, that social worker didn't do that. It's about recognising what happened, the facts, and then trying to think about how we can change and learn and put that learning into action so that we can actually transform our response so that our response isn't just what we think it should be, but what people need. Because I think we can all sit there and think, oh, this is a great idea and this would be really helpful. And, but actually, would it and is it? And can a woman or a man access that? You know, when you're talking about LGBTQ or an ethnic minorities or language or migrant women, can they access these services? what are the barriers and once we understand that we can better respond so mm -hmm. that's what the review is it's about learning it's about recommendations and an action plan and I think they're often become stagnant documents and they shouldn't be they should be live documents that we use to transform what we're doing because if someone's dead something hasn't worked as brutal as that sounds mm -hmm. you know and we need to understand the trail of abuse 
And the ultimate aim of a review is to prevent future death. That's what we want to do. We want to go out of business because we've eradicated this problem. But as I said, it's lengthy and it's complex and it's devastating for families in many ways. The review will show everything. And that's very, very difficult for families. And the colleagues who actually are the ones who go to families and work with them, are they a mixture of individual support workers as well as people who are doing the research you know a bit of both like supportive and finding out our advocate team one thing that's really important about our organization is we are peer-led so our chief exec frank malane set up the organization after his sister and nephew were murdered and that's a really important part of our organization is that all of our advocates have either lost a loved one to fatal domestic abuse have suffered murder or have themselves experienced domestic abuse And that's something that's really important to us is our provenance as an organisation. Their backgrounds are different, but they are all experts on domestic abuse and they advocate for families and offer that peer support. Some of them are also doing research into the area. So two of them are actually PhD candidates. One formerly used to work on the domestic abuse helpline. So they've got a range of skills and backgrounds. And and they're the ones that do the direct work with families and the direct advocacy work, which can be really, really difficult and challenging. But they use their influence to make some really positive change for families. So thank you, Sarah, for this conversations around domestic abuse and extending it, obviously, to things that could also be going on that we're not aware of. Hence, it ends up in a fatality in that way. I know we've got colleagues from different agencies listening to this right now, and I'm sure they're already thinking about going forward, about working with people who are experiencing it or had done in the past, etc. So what could we inform them or introduce to them as a factor that they can take away with them to consider when working with people experiencing or had experienced in a way that could end up in a fatality? It's really important to have that possibility at the forefront of your mind, as difficult as that is. None of us want to think about that worst case, but I think actually if we do, we're much more alive to the fact that there may be real risk. And maybe, you know, talking to colleagues and supervisors about that risk so that, you know, you're not stuck with that really difficult information or decision yourself. So you feel able to sort of action any concerns in your gut and to talk to your colleagues. I think the other thing that's really key is being really engaged in these domestic homicide review processes. So if you're a part of them, really being engaged. But if you're not a part of them and you're working in an area You should be able to access domestic homicide reviews in your area fairly easily through the Community Safety Partnership websites. Like I said, we don't have a repository, which would help, but you can always contact an organisation like AFTER and say, you're keen to look at some suicide reviews. If you can't find them, we hold some. You know, you want to know, you want to engage more, you want to understand what's coming out of review processes. So I think there's this element of recognising that this exists and that this is a risk and being really engaged in understanding the risk and using that to inform your decision making. And so we're providing some training in November around these suicide reviews because we recognise this is a really, really challenging area. So always very happy to answer questions, listen to concerns and, and help in any way we can. Thank you for speaking with us today, Sarah. Anything else to add? Really grateful to have had the opportunity and I I hope that whoever is listening found this useful. And as I said, I'm always really happy to have conversations and to chat further if it's helpful for people. And how would people contact you, Sarah? So you can contact me. My email is sarah.danga at after.org.uk or you can contact us through the website. I'm also on Twitter. 
as are after. So you should be able to find us in some way and we can respond. So thank you for that, Sarah, for talking to us today. Great conversation. Very, very interesting, informative. If you'd like to hear more from Sarah and other leading experts on domestic abuse, book tickets for our online conference on the 15th of October, where we'll be discussing rising domestic abuse and the effects on children during COVID-19. For more information, visit our website at www.childsprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you for listening to the AOCPP's podcast. If there are any specific topics you want discussed in future episodes, email us at hello at aacpp.org.uk. And if you would like more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, then visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you.